1: Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives and music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube and Facebook and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, the Deering Banjo Company, Mule Rezophonic Guitars, and the Henhouse Hang. Alright, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it howdy music nerds and welcome back to the show this is episode number 154 and my guest this week is an incredible singer and songwriter he was a member of the civil wars and now does all kinds of cool and interesting stuff mr john paul white thanks for tuning in everybody i really appreciate you joining me this week and every week as always just an update on the end-of-season giveaway. Our good pals at Spectra 1964 have jumped into the fray with their insanely cool BBDI. It's a DI. It sounds amazing. I use one all the time here, and uh, there's one up for grabs. And um, that's going to be given away at the end of the season, which is coming up in a couple of months in the new year. I think we ha- we're running into late January now with the episodes then we're going to take a little break but at the end of that of the season which is the uh, in late january anyone who is a patreon subscriber to the show which is always much appreciated and helps us keep the proverbial lights on so to speak Um, Anyone that is a Patreon subscriber will be entered automatically into the final draw, which includes some wicked union tube and transistor pedals, guitar pedals, and these um, BBDIs from Spectra 1964. So get on it. All you got to do is be a Patreon subscriber. It's as little as a couple bucks a month and really helps us out and that's all you got to do so thanks to our sponsors for taking part in that and thanks to you for helping out the show and i just like to shout out to a couple of new patreon members this week who are generous enough to help support the show many thanks to steve goldberger and check this name out simplifier is that your name simplifier i love it that's cool that's the name that shows up on patreon simplifier thank you All right, on to this week's show. John Paul White lives in Florence, Alabama, and is known by many for all his amazing work with the Grammy-winning band, The Civil Wars. But John Paul has also worked as a professional songwriter. He runs a studio and a label called Single Lock Records and operates out of Florence. And Florence is part of the three cities known as The Shoals, or as us music nerds know it as Muscle Shoals. And uh, John Paul is a wicked dude. And you'll hear us talking about how I'm an idiot for never having visited Muscle Shoals in the 10 years that I've lived in Nashville. Uh, Muscle Shoals is less than two hours drive from here. And sure enough, since we've done this episode a while back, I've actually taken him up on the offer to visit the Shoals. And he did indeed take me through the Fame Studio and the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio and his own studio in Florence. And man, it's so incredible. Um, I should just mention that those studios, the, both those studios, are amazing places to visit. And uh, the staff at both is really knowledgeable about the history and super accommodating and friendly. And it was so fun to go through those two buildings and just steeped in wicked history. I don't know about you guys, but my relationship with Muscle Shoals goes back to when I was a an aspiring young guitar player in my teens listening to music and I wound up with the Dwayne Ullman anthology which to me was the gateway into all that music. Have you ever heard that compilation? I don't know it's not the same anymore because you know with Spotify and whatever all that stuff's just sitting there but in my day pre-Spotify Man, I got my mitts on the Dwayne Allman anthology, particularly Volume 1, but also there was a Volume 2 of it. And it's like a compilation of all the sessions at Muscle Shoals Sound and Fame that Dwayne Allman was a part of. But that includes tracks by like Wilson Pickett and Clarence Carter, um, some of the early Allman stuff when they were called the Hourglass. There's uh, Aretha Franklin, King Curtis. Man, that there's a track of King Curtis that's called Games People Play that has just I think the greatest slide guitar sound on it it's not like a big solo or anything but it's just wicked anyway um yeah John Hammond, Johnny Jenkins, Boz Skaggs and man it's just so good and then he's sitting there like fishing on the front album cover and I always found that picture really fascinating too. Anyway, it's one of the coolest compilations. It's what got me into all that music in the first place. And from there, it was just like a gateway into like a whole world of amazing music. And that was my weird Canadian kid introduction to Muscle Shoals and a lot of artists that recorded there and just that music in general and getting into it. And that was my that was my way in. Anyway, um, John Paul grew up in a small town in Tennessee, really close to Florence. And during his college days in the area, started playing gigs in bands and a a solo artist on his own. And he eventually discovered that he loved songwriting, especially as a vehicle for him to be able to sing and perform. And that led to him recording an album with his band and eventually a solo album called The Long Goodbye, which is wicked. But it was at a songwriting workshop that he was paired up. That was in Nashville, I think. He was paired up with the already successful Joy Williams. And they hit it off immediately and started working on music that became the Civil Wars. And in their relatively short lifespan, they uh, made a couple of killer records. There's some EPs. There's some live recordings, some video stuff. But basically, there's two records, both with producer Charlie Peacock. They landed some songs on shows like Grey's Anatomy, which really helped their rise to uber-stardom. And when their debut album came out in 2011, called Barton Hollow, it was a huge success and won a Grammy that year, or the next year, I guess, after it came out. They won a number of Grammys, actually. And they worked with some other producers a few times, like T-Bone Burnett and Rick Rubin, which we'll get into today as well. It was a lot of fun to hear about some of that stuff. The Civil War's came to a somewhat crashing halt around 2013. And John Paul has restarted his solo career since then, his label, and and now he's got his studio going as well. His albums, Beulah, and then the most recent one, which is from a couple years ago now, called The Hurting Kind, are both stellar records to check out. They're very different sonically and both really deep and interesting. So it was great to speak to John Paul about all of these projects, his creative process, how he he songwrites, and what some of his influences are and what he's up to these days so you can follow him for any shows that are coming up and news on albums he's making or producing for other people over at johnpaulwhite.com. and now enjoy my conversation with john paul white thanks for listening thanks for doing this man i really appreciate you
0: oh it's my pleasure man thank you for being flexible with sure. uh, a, a ridiculous schedule
1: I also have a pretty wiggy schedule and I, I'm very used to just making it work however it needs to, to work. Yeah. yeah. I,
0: I, don't, I don't know if I would know how to act if I had any kind of structure to my life. <laughs> uh, uh, and we'll probably, we may talk about this, but I've been teaching a couple of classes over at UNA, University of North Alabama. And it's weird having to be somewhere yeah. at a certain time every week. I haven't done that for 25 years. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah,
1: that's so what's odd. Yeah, I, I, I have a bunch of things I, I wanted to ask you about, but um, that sounds pretty intriguing. So are you teaching like a songwriting thing, or what's your,
0: what's your? I am. Um, wow. I do, I'm do. i doing two courses per semester. So uh, this spring is songwriting and artist development. And then in the, uh, sorry, fall. And then in the spring is advanced songwriting, Production, although I am going to teach a publishing class this year too. So, but we we smash it all into Monday and Wednesday, okay. and I can tour all weekend. Yeah, they're they're incredibly understanding about the way my life works, and they're they want me to continue touring. They want me to continue making records. Uh, so if if I need to leave for two or three weeks at a time, they're perfectly fine with it because. Now, with online options, I can always get my class working. I'm very lucky. Uh, the campus is, like, blocks away. Oh, man. Uh, man, the, the, the UNA tennis courts are basically in my backyard. But, I, you know, I've worked really hard for a really long time, and this feels a little like a culmination of all that. So part of me feels guilty. It's it's a pretty good gig, but also, you know, not to sound arrogant, but I feel like I've earned it at least now, and we'll see where it goes from here. I'm still I'm
1: filling it out. So was this something you were looking to get into, or did it just kind of come along, or did you know somebody at the university? Or tell me about the the process of that.
0: I I graduated from that program, so I've been in touch with that univer with the university ever since, and I usually would go and talk to classes. When I wasn't on tour, because some of the faculty are um, really close to. But uh, I had I had thought, you know, in the back of my mind, someday that'd be I think that'd be fun, but didn't think I was there, and COVID came along, and we were about a year into it, <clears throat> and no end inside at the time, the Dr. Garfereck that runs the program reached out to me and said, I know you don't want to do this. <laughs> but, but, but the provost is poking me saying, you think you would ever I said, well, all I can do is ask him. And I said, well, you picked a perfect time to ask me that. Cause yeah. I was sitting, I was sitting here with a whole lot of time on my hands and like, what now? You know, what if I can't tour anymore? What am I going to do? What's, what's the, and I toured so much, so heavy for so long that, yeah. That looked good, too. You know, a little stability, a little something to force me off the road for a little while. Um, so I, I tentatively, you know, I tiptoed in. I said, well, I'll, yeah. I'll do one class and we'll see how it goes. And At the beginning, it was a lot of COVID precautions, so it just felt very detached. Everybody's in a mask and they're all sitting six feet apart. And this is my first classroom. So I you, were, know what I'm
1: you, you were in person then when you started?
0: By the time I started, yeah, we right. were in person. So it was 21. Okay. Maybe, maybe fall of 21, I guess, yeah. Um, but everybody was still really nervous. Um, yeah. Um, and we were all kind of wondering, should we be here? Is, are we... Uh, but regardless, um, it was just a really weird, cold, detached kind of situation i thought i don't i don't know Mm -hmm. if i'm that because in order for me to want to do it i really gotta this kind of goes for anything i do in life i really need to feel connected to it i really need to feel like i'm giving and i'm receiving and they're doing the same thing and if not you know i just go home i i got a yeah fantastic family uh Live in a in a great community here in the Shoals, and uh, I don't I don't have to do things that I used to have to do, but it's it's gotten better and better, and yeah. I've gotten better and better at the job. Um, it's a lot more prep work than I thought it'd be. Interesting. Uh, how do you prep for like a songwriting course? Well, I, I got some good advice from the from the dean. He said. Just look at it as uh, 20 gigs, but you can't play the same songs. <laughs> you got to play all new songs. I thought that's a great way to look at it. I, so I had to start thinking, all right, songwriting, let's break this down into subsets and enough of them that it would cover all, this amount of classes or two classes would be on this one subject. And I'm still... Uh, I'm still getting that right. I, I, I don't feel like I'm I've got it right yet. But I get distracted, so I I have to I print up a bunch of stuff to have in front of me to keep mm-hmm. me on task because I'll just we'll be you know we will <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about something that we're we should talk about class four. Uh, I'm not I'm not used to that. And one thing I got ace in the hole is my wife's teacher and uh she's she's she stays at home now with our three kids but she taught for like 12 years so i have a sounding board yeah and she like everybody else said you're doing fine stop stressing about it it's uh i guarantee you know and i i think that was true i think i was going to stress regardless but they told me at una is like first year you just hold on for dear life. Second year, you'll start easing into it and figuring it out. But first year we, 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 we want you here and we want you trying, but that's all you got to do sh- just show up. Yeah. <laughs> but I, can, I can't do that. I cannot do
1: that. Yeah. That sort of brings up an interesting point about the, the writing process anyway. Like when you teach songwriting, you know, I've, I've done, a, I've done a number of like, you know, I, I'm a, guitar player mostly but I also end up doing some like songwriting workshops sometimes and it's a if you're doing a one off it's a I find it's a bit of a struggle you know because it's just really hard to gauge people and where they are and what they want to get out of it but I would imagine something that that develops over a whole semester you get to approach it a little a little differently do you have like a set method of going in with a class or do you kind of need to suss out where the where all the
0: students are at or how do you gauge how a little of both. A little of both. Yeah. Above. yeah. Um, my very first class seemed to be a little more um, experienced. There was a lot of, um, because it was the first year, it was a bunch of seniors that were getting ready to graduate or they needed electives or they were in a different career track, but I'm teaching it, so they want to take it. So all the people that are really motivated – they were in there and that, that made it easier. Subsequent classes have gotten younger and less experienced. And to the point that my last class, I think 70 to 80% of the class had never written a song in their life. Whoa. And that's, that's, that's tough. Yeah. It's very tough, but, but it's also, you know, I enjoy it as well. Cause I, I I'm not, I'm pretty far removed from that. Uh, but not so far that I don't remember the struggles that I had and things that I wish I could tell younger me. Listen, quit worrying about this. Focus on this, that kind of thing. And I can do that for them. I don't know how many of them will end up being career songwriters. The odds are really low nowadays with the way the – especially with the way the Nashville market works. It's it's completely different than when I got my first deal in 98 – it's a whole different world. And uh, I know hit songwriters that are sitting without a, without a deal and can't get a sniff. And I, I warn them about that. I warn them about how hard it is. But we also talk about songwriting as an artist or songwriting as a producer yeah. and that, that sort of thing. So you, songwriting, yeah, and, and collaboration, how to do that, how not to do that. We talk about business uh, contracts and publishing oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. where your money comes from and stuff like that. And I hope by the end of the semester they haven't decided, hell, no, I'm not going to be a songwriter, <laughs> But it's not for the mate, So I make sure that there's a dose of reality. In yeah, that's important,
1: I think. Yeah, the, in the ones that I've been involved in, I always find the biggest thing to like get through with people is they... There's this. There seems to be like a, a painful amount of like self-editing that happens with either young or inexperienced writers, where they're like, getting hung up on where this song's going to end up, or who, you know, how they're going to get airplay for it, and all, and does it have this element that every other song, does, you know, like these these things that that get young writers sort of hung up. And I'm sure you must see certain
0: patterns too in the classes that you teach, right? Definitely. I think it's, you know, it's every personality. Every person is going to attack it in a different way that works for them. But more often than not, I I try to counsel them that you need to know as much about music as you can. You need to be as educated as humanly possible. All genres, you will steal. We all do. And you need as much on the palate as you possibly can get. And uh, that's something that most of them, like, when I play them songs in class, classics that like, here's an example of this technique or whatever. You can tell by looking in their eyes, they have no idea any of the things I'm playing. And it's like Chris Christopherson and Townsend, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, and Joni Mitchell. And they're just blank. Wow, That's where you're going to have to start. You've got it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to aspire to be it. But you you need the tools in the in the uh, box to be able to access what you need to when you need to on the spot. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of lyric uh, appreciation and structure and stuff like that. But more often than not. And this ain't for everybody, but for me, I learned the day that I stopped trying to please anybody else with my song was the day that I started getting cuts. Um, Same thing with me getting a record deal. The day I just quit trying to be what I thought other people wanted me to be because I wanted to please, I want to entertain. uh, When I got really desperate and said, I'm just going to do this for myself because that ain't working. Then everything started clicking. and I said, everybody's a different point in their lives where they figure that out. You may figure it out young. I wish I had, I was 30 before I figured that out. And, um, uh, let that inform your songwriting, um, write songs that you want to hear on the radio that you want to listen to, that you want to play for people and say, that's me. That's, that's who I am if that's your criteria, the flip side of that is you cannot control whether other people like what you do. You can't. You can't chase it. I don't know anybody that's, well, there's probably some people that are good at mimicking and writing. Uh, there's a few. Writing. Yeah. And more power to them. <laughs> I, I just, I couldn't do it. I'm yeah. I'm wired a certain way. My brain and my voice works in certain patterns. So.
1: One other interesting thing about the whole teaching thing from from like coming at it as a successful artist like you are, do you run into like a cross section of people that are aware of who you are and aren't aware of who you are? Are you just like Professor White to some kids
0: or like, I think I think in there they all know who I am. Okay. But they may not know the music. Yeah. I mean, I've had multiple students tell me I didn't listen to your music until I knew I was taking your class. Yeah. Multiple students that didn't know that I was in Florence and that I was part of that program back in my younger days. It's like, it's crazy how this information age, you can know everything. Yeah. But you know, everybody runs in their little patterns. And so when they announced I was going to teach over there, I mean, there were so many comments. I had no idea that, uh, he was in Florence or after I'd been teaching for a couple of years, about a year there was a story about it and people on campus were saying I had no idea he was teaching here. So as as much info as, as people have, it's there's so much noise that to get through that takes a while to get the message out.
1: What was your background as far, you know, like you mentioned how important like musical knowledge is and in one on one hand, that's like, yeah, like understanding, you know, the, the genre and the, the early material and like, being able to pull from John Prine and Roy Orbison and Joni Mitchell and all that, but also like musical education, like you're a well-versed guitar player too. Like, were you, were you educated as a kid growing up uh, at all in music? Or was that something that you were sort of self-taught along the way as you needed it? I was definitely
0: self-taught. I grew up on a chicken farm down the middle of nowhere, just across the state line in Loretta, Tennessee, mm-hmm. which is about, 20 25 minutes up the road. I've never lived outside of this circle, but uh, grew up on a farm out in the middle of nowhere, and and nobody in my family played. Um, They they were music lovers to a point, but not obsessive about it at all. And they just turned the radio on the car, and that's when we heard music. Yeah, it was a record player that barely worked. There was an eight track player that we probably had seven and we just wore them out, but it was just, it wasn't their thing. I did have aunts, uh, that played in church. So I would get recruited to sing in church because in a really small town. People figure out really quick if you can carry your tune or not. All right, step forward. You're, you're going to be the soloist for this. It's hard. It didn't come along until I was way into my teens. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really didn't happen until I was in college and later. Because uh, again, when you're from a small town, the guitar players in town are like, put the guitar down, get up there and sing. We got this. You don't need to do and, I, and I was like, I don't care. Fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't really know how to do it. And it didn't really drive me. I wasn't right. a guy that when I picked it up, I was like, oh, this is going to be my life. When I got in front of a microphone, yeah uh guitar was the means to an end and when i got to college um all my band members back in the day had gone on and done jobs, you know gotten married and had a job so if i wanted to do anything i had to accompany myself so i just i would just usually every time i saw somebody play i would just sit there and try to memorize the shapes of their hands mm-hmm. and then go do it later but I I didn't know what I was playing a lot of times. I didn't know what chord it was, I didn't what note. But I started understanding the math of it. Yeah. And how how intervals work. I didn't know what an interval was, but I could hear it in my head that yeah, okay, that's that's the one, that's the root. And if you went to a four, if I was listening to a record, if you went to let's say you're in G and you went to a C, I I got to where I could hear that. And there's five and there's learned the numbers later but when somebody showed me the natural number system I was like this makes perfect sense to me because this is how my brain works because I'm not thinking letters somebody says what chord is that right there I start having to count I have to work my way up from the (laughs) nut and uh, and I think that's you know a June Carter quote where she told Johnny was complaining about I can't sing and I can't play and she was like I don't remember exactly how she said it, but she said, you know, basically you need to embrace what you can do and do the very best possible. And no one else can do it. What you're doing. Everyone's unique. Just own it. Sing louder. Play louder. (laughs) and uh, That's good advice. Make make your mark. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I get that. I, I get that I don't play like anybody else, but they don't play like me. And I would come up with stuff uneducated, um, ignorant to how you should play it. Mm-hmm. I'd just figure it out on my guitar and open strings. Oh, that, that sounds good with this. I'm going to change that chord. Or, man, this would be so much easier if this note was lower. So I'd change tunings. Yep. And it was all just trial and error. And then I, I wrote stuff that I'd go into the studio and the guys be like, can you play that for us? Cause we can't, we're not sure what you're doing. And then they'll see it and they'll and they'll realize how simple it is. A lot of the stuff, especially with the civil wars, very simple. Once you see through the smoke and mirrors of how I'm playing it. That's um, interesting.
1: Cause there is a fair chunk of that stuff. That's like guitar wise. It's like, it does make you stop and and listen and be like, what the hell is, is
0: going on? I'm there? glad to hear that. Yeah, man. That, well, it's, it's on purpose because it's part me being self-conscious about my guitar playing and knowing that other people technically are better players than I am. And so I have to put something interesting in there to set me apart. Also, because I will lose interest in my own music if there's not something right. compelling. Right. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, for a while, I was just accompanying myself. And then with the Civil Wars, it's just two voices, one guitar. So the guitar can't just be strumming G, C, D, and, and it'd right. be interesting all night. I have to do things that complement what we're singing, that fit in the holes of what we're singing, that is a harmony to what we're singing, so yeah. that our two voices and the guitar sort right. of is three-part. three, three Yeah. And um, you don't want
1: to be stepping all over the vocal range and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, and I'm a singer at heart, so I'm, I'm really attuned to that, mm-hmm. um, to not getting in the singer's and the song's way. And there's a, you know, I, I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't realize I was doing it. I just wanted to entertain. And I knew when I played a song, like, that was boring. The, <laughs> the, the melodies were good, the l- lyrics were good, but the arrangement, the accompaniment, it's just boring. Anybody yeah. could do what I just did. And I, I couldn't have that. Right. So I'd sneak an odd. It, there's a fine line to that, you know, to distract. If yeah. you do something that's too clever, people, it brings them out of the song and they're paying attention to your guitar. Right. That's for me, that's for Bowdoin. It's, it's got to be one continuous, you know, Nothing outweighs the other when I compose something. So, but that was all just trial and error and me trying to mimic, you know, my heroes without knowing I was doing it. So, who were some of those people that you heard
1: doing that that could actually do what you're talking about, which is like effectively accompany themselves in a way that's interesting but not distracting?
0: Elliot Smith was the first uh, guy that really made me make sense because i was kind of going down that road already and when i heard it i felt like we must have grown up listening to the same things because Mm -hmm. i feel like i could have wrote this stuff i mean it's it was above my a grade at the time it was like everything he's doing makes sense to me it's exactly what i want from music and and that was a big one jeff buckley was a big one yeah. Jeff wasn't quite as much unaccompanied, but he did usually on electric guitar, very underrated guitar player. Yeah. It was still all about his voice, uh, all about the song. Those were the main ones, but the, the simpler ones were, um, uh, you know, Chris, uh, and, you know, John Prine, who you mentioned earlier, I was very lucky to get to know him and, and, uh, Consider him a friend and play a bunch of shows with him, and I was really happy to get to tell him that my finger picking is one thousand percent pulled from the way you finger pick. and he got such a kick out of that. Yeah, because he thinks he sucks, which <laughs> right. most most of us think we suck. I'm like, no, man. I said, if you listen, I'm doing the same pattern as you typically do, and I wasn't trying to, but by osmosis, it became part of who I was.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, man. That's funny that he that he thought he sucked, too, because like I can I can see why like two sides of it. I can see why he would maybe think that because it is so simple, but it's also like it's so effectively compelling that it's, uh, you know, he's a to me like a great guitar player, even though he's not really thought of in that context.
0: Amen. I agree wholeheartedly.
1: You you mentioned like playing in college and stuff like that. Were you like singing in bands? Did you have like did you have a project going before you were working as a writer and before you were as working as a recording artist? Were there like college bands or high school bands that you were involved
0: in? High school bands. um, When I first went to college, many many years ago, yeah. First one of note was called Nothing Fancy, which was named after the Leonard Skinner album Nothing Fancy. Nice. Spelled, the same, spelled the same way as well. Yeah. And um, we, uh, a couple other bands after that, but after about four years of that, I decided there's no record company, man, going to come down here to Lawrenceburg, Tennessee or to Florence, Alabama and slap a contract on the back of the Cadillac and sign me up and make me a, you know, like you always dream of. Yeah. It just wasn't happening. And I could have been a billion miles from Nashville. Because I had zero contacts up there. This is pre-internet, you know. It's, so there's no funny. way it's like to a, really.
1: It's like an hour away.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. from Lawrenceburg. Yeah, I we're just down the road. Um, so I decided I need to go back to college because this ain't working, and I can't afford to go to move to Nashville. So when I got to college, it was mostly me by myself. Every once in a while, I'd, I'd play with one guy, or there'd be like a trio of acoustic guitars, and we'd play. You know, widespread panic and crap yeah. like that that everybody wanted to hear. Because uh, I'm still a people pleaser. I still want to entertain. Like, is that yeah. what you want to hear? Fine. <laughs> I don't. I don't have to like it. Uh, but it was mostly me by myself, and that was. Uh, I had to make a pretty steep ascent to get to where I could do that. Cause like, pull, like pull off a on, solo show, you mean? Yeah. Did yeah. you
1: have enough original play material song. at that point or were you doing covers and stuff?
0: All, all covers. Okay. Um, I started, the reason I started writing songs was not because I wanted to write songs. It's because I wanted to sing. And Walt Aldridge um, was like adjunct faculty. And Jana Malone, who is running the program right now, introduced me to, she said, I'll introduce you to Walt. I think, you know, You've got something that I think he'd be interested in. She'd heard me sing, and I said, "Well, okay, but I think I need to write two or three songs so that he doesn't judge my voice. He doesn't compare it to the original. I sing a cover; it's an automatic. You can't help yourself. You you think about the original and you compare the two. And I was just wise enough to realize, like, I need to get that out of the way and it just stand." Uh, I was stupid enough to think that I could write a good enough song that he would be <laughs> interested in. So I wrote three songs, recorded them in the in the U.N.A. studio, which was just an eight track tape machine, and that was about it. Uh, and gave it to him, and he wanted uh, he wanted to work with me, but not as a singer, as a songwriter. Really interesting. Yeah. He heard the promise in it more than he heard in my voice, Mm -hmm. which broke my heart. But I also thought, fine, I just, I want in the door. And if this is the way in the door, I'm a songwriter. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So I went and interned for him and he had started his own company. It was a joint venture with EMI. So I didn't even have to leave the shows. It was right there by campus. Uh, It's called Walt's time. And for the next for that whole summer I was just going upstairs and beat my head against the wall and trying to write songs and eventually he sent one of them to EMI and they're like all right we'll sign we'll sign this one song and so I got a taste of it it was just a per song contract. And, uh, How does that work? Was, I've, I've actually never heard of that. I haven't heard of it since but it sounds like it happened a lot back then because there were so many songwriters and only so many deals to go around, but every once in a while they'd hear somebody would come in with a batch of songs and be one that they thought, That's a hit. I don't know if that person can ever write another great song. That song's a hit. And they'd sign just that one song. And Weird. same same kind of contract, but okay. only one song involved. And so that's that was my first contract. And then what what happened to that song? Did did it nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. No, it got me in a lot of doors. It was was a song called Change Your Mind, and it was a minor key, waltzy. Oh, that's two strikes right there. I know. (laughs) It was like dark and Southern Gothic, and like no one wanted that shit. Yeah. But everybody liked it. Everybody would be like, man, this is really good. You want to write with one of our writers? Or can I write with you?
1: Oh, cool. So that did it sort of open up the the co-writing world a bit? Yeah.
0: And I figured that out early on that in that world, um, companies were trying to diversify themselves. So EMI had Melba Montgomery and they had Brad Paisley and they had all these people that did more traditional stuff, if that's what you wanted. But if you wanted something that leaned more edgy, um, wasn't called Americana yet, but, you know, leans towards Sunbolt or Wilco or whatever, but also I loved British, rock and so it leaned toward the beatles and elo um i was the guy so if somebody came in from la or from new york I-, I could bridge the gap between what they knew and what the country music market would allow and so i had a enviable position Like all the cool stuff that came to town i'd get end up in the room with them At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing
1: sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support, and this year they are Mule Rezophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Rezophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best-feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Spectra 1964! For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. Their consoles and preamps were behind the sound of so many great American studios of the 1960s through to today. Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Bender Fuzz, the Moore pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at UnionTone.com. And finally, The Hen House Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at The Hen House Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then let's get back to the show. Who were you working for at that time then? Um, You mean like a company or artists? Well, like if you're, so they're setting you up with all these co-rights, but
0: are you getting paid?
1: Yes. Monthly. Monthly. Okay. It's okay. a mo-
0: monthly draw. And I was on a monthly draw from 98 until two years ago. It okay. was the way that I'd, I'd, I'd formulate my life around being able to live on that draw. Yeah. And then if, if I made money, awesome. If I made money playing shows, awesome. But I always knew I had that base. And EMI was the employer. Yeah. Oh, cool. I was at 10 years and then 10 years at BMG and oh. a little while at Warner Chapel. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and at that time, I don't want to get sideways with too many people, but at the time, the publisher was a very, very powerful, integral part of your team okay. because they had pitch meetings and some of them had really good relationships with certain producers and they'd take your song in and they they'd establish um they would they would build you up and they'd be like hey I got new John Paul White songs coming can I come pitch you songs yeah come on I want to hear them first yeah all that that happened that was that was everybody was leveraging and wow. lobbying and like I'm not going to cut this unless you cut this and it was fun and uh you always felt like When you sat down and wrote with somebody, if you wrote a song that was great, if you both thought it was a great song, you you had a very good shot. You probably were going to get a cut. But even if you didn't, it was going to be on hold. It was going to go into the studio. And so that was exciting. Now, that's not true anymore. Right. That's not true at all. If you don't write with the artist or with the producer or you're not a part of the publishing company that the artist is or the producer is or the label owns or whatever. then you're out. Yeah. I mean, I talked when I did the last record, the and kind, I played with people like Bill Anderson and I wrote with people like Bill Anderson and Bobby Braddock. Um, but also, also Paul Overstreet and, uh, when varble and folks like that. And they would tell me like, and it's, it's slim pickings out here. Cause you know, this is fun, but the chances of, unless you cut it, John, the chances of this song ever getting out into the public are just minimal, just tiny without some sort of connection to an artist. um, And I, there they're already, I think they're already seeing the problems with that sort of mentality. And it's just going to get worse because all these writers I'm talking about are going to move on. Yep. They're not going to be able to pay their bills. And so they're going to have to do something else. And all the, the future Bobby Braddocks are going to go do something else. And so the song quality just keeps doing that. Because these people yep. are doing it every single day and, and they're immersed in it all the time and they're obsessed about it. And artists can't do that. They write songs only for themselves. Professional songwriters can write anything they want to any day of the week for anybody. And it just frees you up so much to not have a box to fit in. So unless we have a big batch of artists come to town that are great songwriters, which the odds are not great for that, it's just going to get more and more homogenized. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. What were some of
1: your successes in that era? In that era? Like, I, I'm not aware of what you're, I'm, I'm, I mean, it sounds like you were writing so many songs so regularly, you must've had some, some serious hits and stuff
0: at that point. What, what were some of those? Well, again, the beauty of being in that age, people sold records. Yep. So if I got a song on an album, like a Rascal Flatts album, that was my first big cut. Oh, yeah. It was on that feels like today record is called holes. And that record it sold three or four million and which no one does now. Yeah. But just being on the record, all those mechanicals that came in, my labels thrilled. And so that became who I was. I, I knew that the chances were slim that I'd get a single because I wrote stuff that was so out in left field. But every artist up there wished they were rock singers. Right. Wished they were pop singers. Yeah but they were country singers. And so again, I bridged that gap. I could write songs that felt like country songs because lyrically they were, but it had an edge to it and a little bit different skew to it. And they all would cut them for their records. Yeah. They wouldn't single them, but they would, they would cut them cause they wanted to. Um, so like, you know, Faith Hill and Leanne Rhymes and, yeah. um, the, yeah. the first single I had, um, I think it was the first single. Was the first single of note, for sure, was a song with Jason Aldean called uh, Relentless, which ended up being the title of the record. Whoa. And that went to top 15, I think. And that That's that's the most successful cut I'd had. And by that time, I was starting to just write for me. I was starting to okay. use, use EMI's money. To make big, nice-sounding demos of songs that I loved, right, and was get getting interest from New York and from L.A. EMI ended up getting a record deal based on those demos, a rock deal uh, with yeah. Capitol L.A. So it was, it was that, all some, was that something that.
1: you were you were aiming for, or did that just like come around and sort of fall in your lap?
0: I was always aiming for it, okay. whether I was whether I had said it out loud or not, yeah. but. I always I wanted to be an artist. I always did. And I was never going to be satisfied if I didn't get at least get a shot at it, make a record, see what happens. I could I could live with whether it, you know, because I'd already figured out. People are going to like it or they're not. And there's nothing I can do about it. I just got to make sure I like it. Yeah. And so I thought if I can just make a record that I love, I can walk away. I can tell my grandkids, here's something I did for a while. Uh, It was a lot of fun, but it wasn't meant to be. And uh, so, yeah, that was always in the back of my head. I think all of my decisions were based on getting me there. That
1: was Long Goodbye in 2008, right? So between 98 and 2008, you were strictly writing and co-writing for people.
0: I was. I was on the side, was doing little stuff for myself, but I I do a showcase every other year you know, and test the waters and say, I'm still, I'm still too weird for these people. <laughs> uh, go back to what I was doing. Cause I, I was enjoying myself. I was, I had a lot of fun doing it. I was learning every single day. I was learning how to write a song. Yep. I was learning how to collaborate with a stranger right off the bat. I got really good at it. I got really good at, turning it on and turning it back off. That's so cool. You ever seen Over the Top? Yeah. That was me. It was me, you know, when I'd go into a session, (laughs) I'd become songwriter, John, and then on the drive home. Just flip it back. (laughs) Husband, dad, homeowner. Yeah. And I got to where I could do that. And it was, I think it was really good for me uh, psychologically to to be able to shift gears and not be immersed in it all the time. Because if I lived in Nashville, I would have worked every single day, all day. I right. know I would have living here, there's only three or four people that do what I do. And so I didn't have a choice but to take a day off and do something else or ride on my own or uh, practice my guitar or whatever. So That's interesting. That so so
1: you always like you never made the move to Nashville. No. There must have been somebody saying, Hey man, you, you need to live here or did they just think that yeah. you did? I was saying it.
0: I, I okay. just couldn't afford it. Really? And it was it was way cheaper then than it is now. Yeah. You know, I don't know. How, when I have kids over here that want to intern in Nashville, I'm like, man, all right. Well, if you looked at housing, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's cost prohibitive. But at the time, I wasn't making any money. I was barely. I, know, I had a kid yeah. and uh, a house and a wife and boy, you know, she was teaching at a private school, so we weren't making a lot of money, and there's no way we could move. Really? Nashville As And I, I wanted to. I, you know, any town you grow up in, it's boring. It doesn't matter if sure. it's Muscle shells <laughs> yeah. or if you grow up in New Orleans or you're sick of it. Yeah. By the time yeah. you get in your 20s, you're sick of it.
1: You want to get there?
0: Uh, yeah. And I had so many friends up there, and I knew all the opportunities that I would have, but I couldn't do it. And, but I eventually, the more I did it, the more I realized what a great thing I had that distance. Yeah. Um, like what would happen up there is like, what would have happened is when somebody canceled a co write, BMI would have called me that morning and said, hey, are you free? There's a co write for you. And I'd have took it. But I'm two and a half hours away. They can't do that. Right. And there's good and bad to that. Mostly good, I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, it may not have seemed so like I, it at the time, but you're probably right. Like
0: it probably was. Good. I felt like I was missing out on stuff for sure, but, yeah. um, and I was in a way, but I'd have burned out. I would have totally burned it at both ends and just, I, I'd have just been fried. I wouldn't have anything. I, uh, I needed time to recover and recuperate and get ideas and, get ahead of steam and go into two or three co-writes in, in, in two days and really hit it. So really get it right.
1: what did it actually look like? Were you traveling? Were you commuting to Nashville to do all those co writes or were people, or were, was the, am I sending people down to Florence t- to you later?
0: People were coming down, but, uh, at that time it was all me going up there and, uh, So you were commuting like two or three times a week? Yes and no. At first I was doing that because I didn't have the power of my calendar to convince people, hey, I'm just working Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or whatever. Right. You know, I just took what I could get. Yeah. But at some point I was able to have a little bit of say about it. And I'd go up and I had multiple uh, dudes that I'd sleep on their couch or they had a guest room or whatever. And it was great. It was almost like I was on tour. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and I think it was good for my brain, you know, to because this town is so slow and uh, especially at that time, not super cultured. I mean, yeah. very if you're wanting to immerse yourself into the Southern thing. But if you wanted some Thai food or Vietnamese food or forget Indian it. food, yeah, forget it. If yeah. you wanted something that wasn't fried, <laughs> Forget it.
1: Well, Nashville, and, you Nashville know, was kind of like that too back then, right? Like it's not now, but it was.
0: You you could find options, but yeah, it was it was just a bigger, more expensive version of of <laughs> us. But uh, yeah, uh, I would I would stay two, sometimes three days. That helped help my wife wrap her head around the idea of me being gone, and playing music. Right. So when touring came along, it wasn't such a, an abrupt, okay, I'm, I've been here every day, but I'm going to be going for the next four weeks. Yeah. Uh, we had a little bit more of an understanding of that. Still very hard, especially with a small child. No doubt. Yeah. But, but to her credit, I think part of it was she, she knew it was my dream. She knew it was my passion and my obsession. She loved what I did. She loved the songs. And I think she, like me, saw the potential of what it could be. Uh, She's a teacher at heart. She grew up wanting to be a teacher. She knew here's exactly what you do to become a teacher. Then you teach for 40 years and then you retire. That's what my life's going to be. I'm like, my brain does not work that way. (laughs) And I think that was good for her that you know, we were opposites. Our opposites. We're it's our 25th anniversary this year, and I always joke that in musician years, that's like 143 yeah, or something like that. <laughs> uh, and we we've been through it, but um, yeah, she saw that there was a lot of potential there. And sometimes when I didn't, and vice versa, we'd keep it going. But there was many times of me saying, "I I need to come home." Because this is not working on a level that we can pay our bills, and uh, every contract, publishing contract, is one year, right? With op, with options, so at the end of every single year from '98 to well, till two or three years two ago, years ago, yeah, yeah. Every year you wondered, will I get picked up? Because it was not your choice, right? That's a that's a tenuous place to live for 20-25 no years I yeah, got no. used to it but now with with UNA it's like God, oh, this is weird I've got a I don't have a guarantee I'm always going to have a job over here but I got as close to one as I could get because yeah. who else is going to do who else is going to live in the shoals and do what <laughs> I do with the yeah. ties that I have to the program and yeah, uh, so I got pretty good job security but I never had job security until now yeah, man. I, I, yeah. I don't, I certainly don't. Um, yeah. It's, it's, there's pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm worried I'll lose some edge, you know, cause I have a plan, a backup plan. I have a, I have a, uh, a base, you know, I think you make decisions a little differently. I think mm-hmm. I'd be more adventurous. I think I'd probably work more yeah. than I am right now. And I gotta, I gotta do something about that. I gotta, I, gotta get, I gotta get that old motivation back, that hunger, that, that, yeah. that fear of losing my gig back because yeah. that's, that's when I create this. Yeah.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
0: switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: So when, so when you did the long goodbye, did you did you have to like forego some of the writing stuff? Or like how did you wrangle that with your publishing contract like did, were they understanding and they were just like well yeah you go make a record because it's all part of the picture
0: that's it okay and again really big company really diversified company it was a feather in their hat uh because all the nashville companies wanted to work with new york wanted to work with la but there was always this little stepbrother kind of thing of like Nashville, that when and they tell me they'd be like, when somebody from Nashville sends me something that says this is really cool and rock and roll or whatever, we always roll our eyes because mm-hmm. it's not. <laughs> it, and in their perspective, it is. Yeah. But when you're doing it every day with real rock and roll artists, like, oh, this is this is a cheesy knockoff of that. But ah, a lot of times they would say, but when we heard your stuff, it was like. Okay, there's potential here, and um, EMI was just thrilled to be able to say uh, they were able to do that then. they were they were they were integral to me getting a record deal in Los Angeles. Yeah. being able to say that to prospective songwriters they're trying to sign yeah I understood it, but again, I wrote all those songs, and so they sh- they stood to make some money right but that that record was a culmination of the ten years before. I was able to just pick all my best stuff.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a long period of time of like having not made a record where you can pull from. <laughs> that
0: yeah. and and that's, you know, most artists, their their first record, they've probably been working on stuff since they were teenagers. Yeah. So by the time they actually make that record, it's songs that have five, six, seven Recolated. years. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the second album usually sucks. That's right. (laughs) Because they've got six months to write the next record and they don't do it all the time. They're not seasoned songwriters. It was easy for me. Yeah. Because that's what I did every day. Totally. Uh, And just, and it was a finely tuned muscle for you, I bet. It was. It wasn't always good. You know, it wasn't always great, but I never just stared at the page. I never. Didn't have something to say or something to play or a melody that would pop in my head. It was, yeah. it was a superpower that I don't know how much we go into this, but it's a superpower that I feel like there's kryptonite around here, or something right now because when COVID came along, I started. Well, I stopped thinking about it. I was just thinking about protecting my family and how are we going to make it through this without touring. How am I going to songwrite without being able to to be in a room with somebody? All those things. So my focus changed. And then when I tried to write, I wasn't living. I was in four walls with four other people every single day. And I had no real life experiences to write about. Everything that I started writing about felt trivial. You know, knowing people are dying out there and just the uncertainty of Where we were heading, songs about my broken heart seemed silly. Yeah, and so I just put it away and be like, "Well, you know, I'll get back to it later." Um, I think I figured out that there's something, there's some sort of uh, correlation between traveling, interacting, connecting with people, and creativity. And once that went away, I was just stifled. I was just, I just stared at the page. I'd play stuff and it sounded like everything I'd already played.
1: Did that freak you out? Because you'd, you'd, you'd never yeah. had like writer's block really in that way if that's what it was?
0: I, it, it, it still terrifies me. Because I still ain't got it back the way that I want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this summer is going to be spent every day trying to get back in that groove again and have something to say. Um... But yeah, I've never in my life had writers block. It always just been a faucet, just running and trying to catch it all. That is a superpower. uh, It is, and when you lose it, you feel mortal. Yeah, and uh, I know that I have other skills that um, make me happy. In the interim, I've been making, you know, producing records over here. I've got a studio next door that I started with uh, Ben Tanner uh, with Alabama Shakes. Um, We've been been working together about 10 years now. Also, you know, Single Lock Records, which we started 10 years ago as well. So those two things are something that I love and keeps me as occupied as I want to be. Whether I want to write a song again or not, I can't rest without knowing I can't. Right, I can't walk away. And uh, told my wife, I said, "I don't know if I've got another record in me or not. I don't know if uh, I've got more touring in me or not. I'll I'll follow my nose." But the idea that I can't write a song is something I
1: just won't accept. So, what about with the when you were, when you started the Civil Wars? Was that like a whole different gear shift that you were comfortable with as well? Because that was sort of like you were writing material. I mean, I guess you were co-writing a lot of that as well, but like. A lot of it was geared towards sort of a different thing altogether, right? It was like geared towards those two voices. And
0: it was uh, a v- just a happy accident, uh, her in the first place. You know, it was a songwriting camp and about 25 riders, and we drew straws and we ended up in the room together. And I oh, well. didn't know she existed. I didn't know she existed. She didn't know I existed. She didn't have any reason to know I existed. This, you know, all my stuff had been marginal and you'd have to be a big country music fan to know it. She had sold like a quarter of a million records in the CCM world, but she was unknown to me. Yeah. So when we started working together, it was really weird how, you know, she wasn't, she didn't have a big country background. So she would kind of gravitate toward the times when I would do something country. It was novel to her and vice versa. She was a pop girl yeah. and I grew up on pop music. I love pop music. I don't really incorporate it into my songs that much um, at that time. And uh, so we I just embraced it. But there was also, I had lost my deal uh, with Capitol Records because Capitol and Virgin merged together. Okay. Jason Flom took over. Jason was running Virgin. So all the Virgin artists were safe. All the Capitol artists that their record hadn't come out yet. Don't. Wow. And which, you know, at the end of the day, knowing that it was just a business decision, didn't it? Didn't hurt as bad as we don't think your record's good, so we're not going right. to put it out. Um, and they gave me my record back uh, and let me put it out if I wanted to. But uh, I was I was really bitter, and I really tried hard to please a lot of people while I was making that record. I, I made sure I pleased myself, but I had an A and R guy, and I had a president of the label, and I had management and you know, the whole team that all relied on me to do, to do the best I could do. And I felt that. And so I did things, not, not that I didn't really want to do, them, but it wouldn't have been my, cho- my first choice. I'd have done it a little bit different way. So after that, losing the deal, I went back to my old rhetoric of like, you just need to please yourself and stop trying to please somebody else. And, and I, I just got really desperate. And when we met each other, she had just got out of her deal and it was very contentious. They didn't want to let her out. She didn't want to do that CCM thing anymore. So we were both kind of cynical, bitter, and it became us against the world. It became, you know, we don't care if anybody likes this or not. We don't care if we play to five people. We like it. We think it's compelling and it's good and it's, I, I want to keep doing it.
1: Did it come together really quickly and naturally?
0: Yeah, really okay. fast. The first song we wrote was, nothing really happened with it. It was a, a third co-writer in the room, Greg Becker, who's one of my best friends and one of the best lyricist songwriters in uh, Nashville. But he said, he said, I felt like neither one of you knew I was in the room. <laughs> and, and he's laughing about it. It yeah. was just like, I was just sitting there just watching Uh, Because we were figuring out, oh, you like this band? Yeah. yeah. It's like the Friends episode when uh, Joey wants to know about Ross's three-way. And he said, (laughs) Ross said, well, you know what it's like when you're in a room and the other two people have no idea you're there? (laughs) That's what it was like. Uh Uh, I I get that. Um, But we wrote another song. And I had her sing on the song. And it was If I Didn't Know Better, okay. uh, which was cut uh, Nashville. T-Bone Burnett cut that for Nashville. If I Didn't Know Better, I wrote with uh, an artist named Aram Ray, who is coming down to work in my studio this summer. We've She's great. stayed close. She's fantastic. I'm glad you know her. Um, we're going to do a Don't Tell Anybody. We're going to do a Christmas uh, EP. Yeah. I've I've never done. I'm excited about that. But we had written that song and I was like, well, we need to do a work tape for our song Falling, which is the first song that we wrote together, really, just the two of us. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't know better, I said, well, you sing the female part on this that Aaron was singing because Aaron's in uh, Savannah, Georgia and not going to be around anytime soon. We just need a work tape. And it was apparent, you know, it was different. there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And then it was, it was, it was fast.
1: Okay. It was fast. Yeah. And so, so did you guys make that, the, the rec- the first record on your own or did you have a deal at that point? Or did you just fund it yourself
0: and end up shopping it we, around? We never had a deal. Okay. In the life of the band until the band broke up, we, it was, uh, sensibility records, which was, uh, her husband, wow. uh, her, her and her husband, uh, had, I uh, started the company mostly with the plan of doing her solo stuff. And uh, and then Civil Wars came along and we became part of that. But it was it was the three of us, no one else. And so little by little, we, we we found Frank Riley at High Road Touring as our booking agency. And we got Carla Sachs at uh, Sachs & Co. to, to uh, do our PR and uh, things like that. And we just started touring and things kept growing. We just kept saying, all right, people would reach out, you know, dual tone or, uh, rounder or what, whatever this, you know, the smaller independent. Yeah. They would reach out and like, Hey, we'd be interested in working with y'all. Hell yeah. I'm I love, especially rounder. I was just like, I grew up on those bluegrass records. I, I was a obsessive J.D. Crow and, and, uh, Nashville Bluegrass Band and all that stuff was just a big deal to me. And so I was thrilled. But every time we'd have the meetings, we'd realize once we got the stars out of our eyes that they're not really offering to do anything we're not already doing on our own. And, our and, and keeping all the money. Yes. And keeping all the creative control yep. and you know, all the decisions. It's us. And that's hard, but I don't want to give that up. Somebody's yeah. going to have to offer something that's a deal breaker. That's like, right. we can't say no to this, and we weren't at a point where somebody's going to give us that kind of deal. Yeah, uh, so we'd always say thanks, but no thanks. And after the band broke up, um, we we you know we weren't able to do that anymore. So uh, we signed with Columbia, and let they they dealt all the stuff. Oh, okay. We had already uh, signed a deal with Columbia overseas. Yeah. We figured out at some point we can't do it worldwide. Yeah, hard enough uh, yeah, no to doubt. do uh, the United States. Yeah. Uh, so, you, so yeah,
1: you worked with with Charlie Peacock on those records. Uh, and there's some there's something I don't know what the affiliation is with Rick Rubin. Like how what what did you do with him exactly?
0: So after the first record. We were touring constantly, and management, Nate, was getting lots of requests from different producers and labels right. and stuff, and he said, do you want to meet with any of these people? And I'm like, well, I don't know how anybody could make a better record than Charlie did. But yeah, I'd like to meet these people, you know, Ethan Johns and Pierre Marchand and Marius DeVries and Rick Rubin, T and Burnett, people like that. Mm-hmm. Like, heck, yeah, I, I'm not going to pass up the opportunity yeah. to ask him about records that make me who I am. And uh, so we were touring West Coast. And uh, I don't know if Rick reached out. I don't know who reached out to who. But we ended up out there at Shangri-La. Oh, and did it? And yeah. And had lots of, as you would expect, very deep conversations. <laughs> it's It's... It's very obvious, very quickly, why he's made the best record that most artists have made in their discography. The Rick Rubin ones were, uh, to me, the better ones, but they were also usually the more successful ones. Um, tell me, tell re- me
1: about your your theory on that, because like, I, I, you know, I'm a producer myself, and I make a lot of records and stuff, and I have never quite been able to wrap my head around the Rick Rubin thing. Like what
0: okay and so you worked I, with him Yeah, please. I will tell you it and it sounds too simple. It sounds too good to be true. And it okay. sounds like, well, I do that. <laughs> um Rick doesn't play. Yeah. He could not play a chord if he wanted to. He yeah. has no idea how to pull up a vocal on a channel. Uh tech illiterate. No idea very educated when it comes to music you know yeah. recorded music history he knows it all and and pulls from it all but the thing that he does that I've never been around T-Bone's kind of close um, he makes you feel like the greatest artist on the face of the planet he gives you this singular attention and appreciation of what you're doing and he notices things and he, bring, he brings it up it's like Nobody's ever said that before. Nobody's ever noticed that we do that. And um, we, um, so we had one day, and he said, Why don't you go in the studio? And you got anything that haven't recorded yet? Said, yeah, we got three or four songs that really need demos. So, well, let's do it. And uh, just you two and the guitar, like you normally do live. And that's what we did. And We'd do a song and he'd come out and give little suggestions. Most often the suggestion would be, you need to be thinking about what you're singing. You need, I need to feel that emotion of that line because your lines are very emotional, but it can't be, you can't just be performing for me. You know, I got to feel that. And that was good. It was hard because we didn't know the songs that well yet. Yeah. So there's a, you're trying to stop thinking. Um, so we did that for a day and he came to our show that night at Largo and, which was an honor that he came and thought that was it, thought that was the end of it. Uh, because ultimately I decided Charlie's still the guy he's Rick Rubin. And I understand why he's Rick Rubin. And I talked to him about occult cult and about Slayer and, uh, you know, yeah. those records, no uh, no. the black, black crows and, uh, records that made me. And he had great stories about him. I mean, I, I just started seeing why people worked with him. But Charlie was yeah. guy. I mean, he, he, he had done nothing not to be the, next, the producer of the next record. So that was all fun, but we moved on. Well, then the band broke up. And the, there was material that wasn't finished. They went back and listened to those recordings. Ah, uh, okay. Decided to finish him up. Yep. Uh, so that's how that happened. Okay. It came from that. It came from that one day of demo and songs at his place, and then it got uh, built around and made into the record. Okay. Uh, Only a couple of tracks. I don't even remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was. So uh, yeah, it it gets brought up a lot. Like, what's it like working with Rick Rubin? And it's great, but it was just one afternoon, really. Yeah. Uh, and crazy thing is he's stayed in touch. Like if I ever have anything new, I'll email him and I'll, I'll get an email back just like that. Oh, I've been wondering what you've been doing. I can't wait to listen uh-huh. to this. Like, do you know who you are?
1: <laughs>
0: you don't need to, you don't need to answer my email. I'm sure. I'm glad you yeah. do. But me as label owner, as producer, uh, it was a good lesson in for writing. sure okay yeah just Did being he, around
1: people like that is there's a lot to yeah. be gleaned from that situation
0: one of the pit things that people don't like about rick or they, they they definitely call him out for and same thing with t-bone is this notion that he doesn't show up for the yeah. session yeah and i'm not saying that that's not true uh we didn't have that experience maybe we would have maybe not um, but I think Rick and T-Bone, one of their other great strengths is they get people in the room that they know what they do and they know that what they do is perfect for what you do. Yeah. And they get out of the way and they let the conversation happen and everything happens organically. And they come in and they poke or they steer. And like, hey, how about less of that but more of this? Yeah. And, but let it, and most of the players on those records – they're producers as well right so you got a bunch of people helping produce this record for you yeah well that sounds easy on the surface but exactly. i don't know anybody else that's good at that dave cobb has definitely followed in the uh footsteps of t-bone in that way he surrounds artists with great he makes them feel like a million bucks and that great gear and they make their best records
1: joe henry but not joe henry
0: yeah just not a lot of people can do that
1: on your records. You guys had a lot of the top call Nashville people like Dan Dugmore is on there and uh, Barry Bales is on there, JT Cornwalls, yeah. like some of those guys that are like studio stalwarts. Was that like yeah. a were you guys all tracking those together? Was that how you rolled with those records? No, okay. um, so you do your thing every and then... track,
0: yeah. Every track was she and I and my acoustic guitar live around, uh. Two vocal mics and one acoustic mic okay. right beside each other, just like we perform. And um, I'd never recorded that way. And it was, it was hard. It was frustrating at times. Like, yeah. if you just let me put this stupid guitar down, I can sing this better. Yeah, And Charlie was adamant. He's like, you, maybe technically, but he said, you sing differently when you don't have a guitar yeah. in your hands. And it's yeah. not as compelling. And it's not as compelling as when you both are singing at the same time as well. And so like, if I missed a note, the take was bad. Right. If I missed a guitar note, the take was bad. You couldn't keep anything. Yeah. So it's a little yeah. like, you know, the old school back in the Jim Reeves, Patsy Klein days. Sure. Like you didn't get it. But Charlie was really good at full take comping. Yeah. So, Luckily, my years of being here in the shoals, my timing was, was well solid. Whether it was good or not, it was consistent. Yeah. So if I played a song a certain tempo, I would play it over and over the same tempo. Yeah. Um and I didn't realize that I could do that until doing that record. But he said, you know, he said, we can we can comp that verse from the first tape onto this seventh tape. Um and so that Helped you loosen up, so when you play the song, you miss a note. And keep going, and eventually Charlie would say, "Okay, I got everything I need." And he'd use most of one take, but there'd be bits and pieces. Yeah. They're like, "Oh, this yeah. this bridge was magic. We need to," and it felt like a you know everybody does it now, uh, but at the time it was a little bit novel. And he yeah. had done it back in his jazz days on tape, and he'd gotten really good at how to do full band comps and uh we do it a ton over here ben tanner's great at it i bet yeah. yeah can you tell me a little bit about
1: your 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 situation now so you're in florence or you're in
0: muscle shoals florence, florence. No. And nobody's nobody's actually in muscle Shoals. really we all say we all say we're from muscle Shoals, but i mean ben graduated from muscle Shoals high school but Everyone else is from somewhere else or they're from Green Hill or they're from Waterloo or they're from Colbert County. And, uh, but we're all from Muscle Shoals. Jason Isbell says he's from the Shoals. He's from Green Hill, which is uh, (laughs) closer to Loretta where I grew up. Uh, But you know, we all, we all get it. We all cut our teeth here.
1: So there's like a serious history there with recording, obviously. Um, how much of that were you aware of, like, as a kid? Like, was it a thing that was around or was, were you oblivious?
0: Oblivious. Okay. Again, I could have been a million miles from Muscle Shoals, too. Yeah. Uh, on a farm out there. I knew this is something that I get on a soapbox about it sometimes. But, like, when you were growing up, and I think we're probably roughly the same age. I think we're exactly the same age. So, you know, when we were growing up, and it's not that long ago, but there's no internet. You know, there's no satellite radio. There's no cell phones. There's no nothing. Um, all I knew was the records my parents had, the records my friend's parents had, and whatever was being played on the radio. And radio up there was top 40 pop and top 40 country. Okay. Yeah. Uh, unless you listen to NPR and listen to classical stuff. Um, that was it. That was your education. You knew nothing else. Um, once I started playing music... Going and seeing bands play, then I I started all the soul and R and B and everything that this place is known for. I I just I took it all in. But growing up, I was I only knew Don Williams and Merle yeah. Haggard and Johnny Cash, but also my mom's Johnny Mathis, uh, uh, Dino, um, Frank Sinatra, things like that. Uh, which I think is what made me who I am. My kids have access to every song ever recorded yeah. for $10 a month. And so there's nothing regional about their tastes. Right. Because they listen to everything. Yeah. They're not. Uh, and I think that's going to be the death of regional music. Cause
1: yeah, that's kind of too bad because that, that was a real thing that was real in that, in those days where you just grew up around something.
0: I think, uh, and I've always said this, I I really don't want to be a better, too good a guitar player, because I think I do better painting with primary colors, and I get everything possible out of that simple palette. If I was a great player, um, it'd be infinite. If I was a great keyboard player with all the sounds and different things you can do, it'd be infinite, and I don't think I'd be able to create that way, and so... When you've only got a few tools that you grew up with, you just you're just the best at those few Maximize things. Them. yeah. I think it's so much better than being good at lots of things. And so that's sort I of a, will, it. We'll see.
1: That's sort of a, an interesting thing about Muscle Shoals too. Is like those guys were like so specific at what they did, but they just did it. They did that thing so well. Like the players and guys like Rick yes. Hall that that were sort of the orchestrators of that whole thing too. Did you ever meet any of the, like, did you meet Rick Hall ever?
0: Oh yeah. You did? Yeah. We we were, we were friends. Oh, you were? Uh, oh man. Yeah. He was, I never worked for him. Yeah. So I had nothing but good relationship with him. I heard everybody else's horror stories of yeah, working yeah. in the studio with him. Uh, but he was always sweet to me. And anytime I was over there, he'd, John, how are you doing? Play me your new stuff. And you're welcome here anytime. He yeah, was
1: great did you guys ever record at, at uh at fame or, or muscle Show sound
0: we yes and and okay. uh not at muscle Show sound but uh at fame uh wrote a few songs there too yeah. uh my father's father was written okay. there the day of obama's inauguration yeah it was all kind of born out of that um but uh yeah that place is is an important place to me uh Long Goodbye was recorded there. parts of Beulah was recorded there, and parts of the Huartton Oh,
1: Okay, so you, you did them. So, you did a bunch of stuff there.:
0: Yeah, oh, a cool. lot of demos too, a lot of demos too, yeah. over the years. That's so how I met Ben Tanner. He was uh, an apprentice over there, and we clicked really quickly. yeah and uh, yeah so I, I owe them a lot. Rodney, his son, they've always been very accommodating, very sweet. Linda, his wife is one of my favorite. Uh, humans on earth. Um, but out, out, outside of that, you know, to give a little bit of a backstory on the show's influence on me, as soon as I started playing music I started become, coming in contact with Spooner Oldham and Jimmy yeah. Johnson and Roger and, um, and David Hood especially. Yep. And every one of them to a person was just like man, I really like what you're doing. I'd love to help you out. And like, hey, we're doing this show over here. Do you want to come play with us or do you want to sing a song or what? So cool. And I'm like, again, like with Rick, like, you know who you are? <laughs> I mean, you played the bass line on it. I'll take you there. Why are you <laughs> even t- talking to me? But every one of them, the first time I met Jimmy Johnson, a friend of a friend introduced me and took me to Muscle Show Sound when it was down by the river in the big... Naval Reserve that they appropriated. And I was nobody from nowhere. I'd never done anything but play in VFWs and American Legions. And Jimmy talked to me for almost three hours about just stories about Joe Cocker and Paul Simon and Rod Stewart. And because he he figured out really quickly that I knew the R&B background, but I really knew Bob Dylan and Bob Seger and Yeah, Uh, Doctor Hook and Leon Russell and all that. So, he just regaled me all day like I was somebody. I thought. Yeah. And every single one of those guys—that's how they carry themselves. And I think that's why this place is special. Yeah. They also play that way, because you know they have certain styles of playing. But if you listen to Muscle Shoals records, especially after the first. Four or five years when the Swampers were really yeah. You listen to the you know the muscle the the the, the stuff done at the Muscle Show Sound Studio. It's very eclectic, and it's they're truly playing what's best uh, for that band, that artist at that time on that song. Not it's not like Motown or Stax. Like we have a sound, and you came here for that sound, so we'll give it to you. Nah, it's not like that at all. So. You listen to Kodachrome and then you listen to Take a Letter Maria, or you listen, you know, you'd listen to anything on Carney, you wouldn't know they're from the know. same area. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I love that. I love being part of the community that it's not about us, you know, it's about whatever serves the song. And I think that's why it's still vibrant and why it still matters.
1: It's- it's also really interesting that a lot of those or most of those guys like never left too, right? Like it's uh, when you think about the the insane discography that they had and that they could have probably had careers in L.A. or New York or Nashville or whatever, but most of them just stuck around and kept working
0: there. It's pretty cool, <laughs> pretty unique. Uh, uh, Roger and David, every once in a while, would go out on a tour with yeah. like traffic. The, or yeah. The Water like boys that. or
1: whatever, yeah
0: waterboys but ultimately they, they, they always would rather be home yeah. they were they were super happy to just being studio musicians and yeah you know they go to la and memphis and and new york and do sessions uh but none of them ever left never felt like they had to yeah uh
1: so the studio that you've got now you do you sort of co-own it with ben tanner is that the well it's my it's
0: it's it's my place and you know, the majority of the gear is mine, mm-hmm. but we're definitely partners. I mean, he's he's the brains over there. He, yeah. I don't know how to run most of that stuff. Okay. I, I could figure it out if you gave me enough time. But uh when it comes to routing and patching and all that, I'm I'm like, that's You're that's up. you, man. Yeah, you, you take it. And when it comes to mixing, I have no urge to mix. Okay. I, I never I never spent time fine tuning EQ or uh, things like that and I, I'm, I'm fascinated with it but it ain't my world and he loves
1: it if you're producing do you sit there and are you involved in the process or do you just leave it to Ben or to whoever's mixing the record
0: the technical side I leave to him except hey I want it to sound like this can we and yeah. I've done it enough to know hey let's get that champ out and run it through that echoplex right. with this 12 string electric you know yeah. I, I know how to do all that, um, but what mic to use, I, I don't know. I don't care. Just put a yeah. 57 on out. Yeah. <laughs> ben, ben cares, and Ben knows better. Uh, so it's a really good partnership because his yeah. brain works a little different than mine. I'm usually way more in tune with, is the song being served? Uh, right.
1: That's a good combination, and, having a, yeah. somebody
0: like that and the And the vocal. Team. My favorite thing is producing the vocal. It's okay. my favorite thing of all. is it. like giving little tricks and tips of how to get the breath in where people don't notice it, and but everything still stay emotional and conversational. Um, I feel like that's probably my strength uh, in those situations. But yeah, I, everything I've produced has been with Ben and I, I don't see that changing. Is it a commercial space or is it on your property? I live... Uh, I'm here on Poplar Street. I can see the studio, which is the oh. house next door. Yeah. Oh, great. So it's, it's a, this is uh, old, uh, late 1800s, old Victorian. And it's uh, also same era, uh, Stone House. Uh, cool. That, that, uh, when it became for sale, I really could not afford it. But yeah. I couldn't afford okay. not to. Right, right. Because UNA is buying up everything. So it would have been a frat house or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so did you did and you come yeah. in and do a bunch of work on it? Or did you just kind of like move stuff in and just use what was there?
0: Yeah. Cool. That, that was almost... Prim- uh, and I, uh, that was on purpose. I, yeah. Not because of lack of funds. I didn't want a typical studio right. uh, vibe. I yeah. wanted it to feel like you are in somebody's living room, somebody's bedroom, and that you literally are. Yeah. Uh, I tore out... Uh, there was uh, two rooms and I tore a doorway out so you could to connect them. But other than that, nothing. We, uh, for acoustics, at least at first, we've got some bass traps and stuff now, but uh, my kids' school, they were going to get rid of their uh, curtains. Curtains were from back in the 80s. They were the typical red theater curtains, super yep. heavy, chains in the bottom of them to weigh them down and everything. And I said, I tell you what, I'll help you all buy some new curtains if I could have your old ones. And as soon as we hung them up in the control room, it was just instant like, wow. this room will work. Yeah. We can mix in this room. And, you know, there's things about it that could be better and that we're tweaking, but Ben knows that room inside and out. So when he mixes something, he knows what he's hearing. Totally. He, kn- he knows where the low end is a little too hot in that room and it can compensate for it. And things like that. So, um, sounds like a great little operation. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm a very lucky guy. I worked really hard to be able to make this happen, but yeah. man, I know lots of people more talented than me that have not gotten <laughs> are not where I am. And I don't take it for granted at all.
1: So uh, going forward from here, you, you know, like you put out a record in 2019, the COVID thing has been crazy and you're teaching now. Do you foresee, like, is it in the works for you to make a record in the next while or are you just going to wait till that like inspiration hits to like feel like Um, you're writing the material again or.
0: I'm not going to wait. And that record will depend on whether, you know, I think those songs are great and compelling and, and something I need to say. I don't know what it'll sound like at all. And I never do. And that's fine with me. I, I don't, when I sit down and I start playing after I've written 10, 20 songs, yeah. I'll know what the record's supposed to sound like. And um, that's exciting. But I, I feel like I have another record in me. I may have 10 more records oh, in me, but yeah, you do. the next one is the one uh, I got to focus on. Yeah. and it be a good, healthy, healthy spot and uh, not be doing it for any reason other than I want to and that I want to connect with people. So as long as that's the criteria, I trust what, whatever happens.
1: Yeah, it felt like with the herding kind, it was sort of like you had like a a concept in mind or something that I don't know if you really were writing the material towards that project or not, but, um, you know. Uh,
0: yeah, yes and no. Um I was listening to a ton of that Bill Putnam uh, engineered uh, Chittag and stuff. Yep. I love the Country Politan thing. I never understood people that didn't you, like it.
1: You killed it on that record, man. It sounds, it, it doesn't sound like I, a throwback, but it sounds like very inspired by, and it's great.
0: Well, then, then we did our job. I did yeah. not want to make a retro record. I didn't yeah. want a bunch of RCA ribbon mics to make me sound like a Jim Reeves or anything like that. I wanted it to be a modern record. Yeah but with those sensibilities and with, and not be afraid of being slick for lack of a better term. I I wanted it to be slick. I wanted the players to be really fucking good at what they do. And I got Pat Bergeson, um, who that guy's not bad. eh? Well, and John Estes, do you know John Estes? I do. Bass player. Yeah. He's a producer in his own right as well. Yeah. Uh, He's the one that introduced me to Pat because I told him, I said, who I want for this session is Chad Atkins. Uh, I can't think of anyone that is. He was like, I got the guy. Yeah. And he was as advertised. He was. He's insane. He's unbelievable. The did only.
1: You, did you hear him play harmonica? I didn't allow him to. He's, he's a better uh, harmonica player than he is a guitar player. Let me just tell you that. That's
0: what he said. <laughs> but I hate harmonica. <laughs> I mean, I instantly am mad when a harmonica enters a song. <laughs> okay, then. Saxophone's close. <laughs> yeah. Harmonica's number one. And it's, it's years of listening to Bob Dylan. Yeah. Uh, because not only did it not sound like he knew how to play it, but it sounded like he was doing it just to make it interesting. And it was at the same volume. It was at a, uh, you know, the, the mic volume didn't change. So it would just rip my rip ears your out, fucking head off. Yeah, just have to turn it down. Oh, Bob's back singing now. I can listen again. Like, no, man, I ain't doing it. I, it was so harsh, and you know, there's times when I can appreciate it, but he yeah. got a kick out of it. He was like, "Well, the way I play harmonica, you know, I'll do it through an amp, and you want like, no, man, it's not just gonna play happen. guitar." And he loved that. He thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, everybody thinks they can convince me like, Oh, you ain't heard me play harmonica. All right, go ahead. Nah, still a harmonica, man. Yeah. still hate it. Yeah. But Pat, John Estes uh, had string section and I bought a vibraphone for the occasion. It was Hank Snow. Hank Snow's old vibraphone. Really? I've I've got an album cover over there sitting next to it and it's Hank. He had done an instrumental record that I did not know existed. Oh, and shit. he's standing he's standing there in front of that vibraphone with a bunch of other instruments in a semicircle you know amazing uh, it's got little tabs on it with what uh, note each one is oh. and I got I mean you can see them in that album cover. you can see it so it's like I gotta nice. think, Hank, put those on there but regardless it's it's a great sounding instrument and I kept noticing when I'd listen to those old records, they'd usually be acoustic guitar, upright bass, yeah. maybe a snare, yeah. and
1: vibraphone. A lot of the time you th- you think there's drums and there's just not drums. Yeah, yeah. it's just the
0: chop, yeah. or it's the plug. And yeah. wow. um, I never recorded anything that simply, but the vibraphone, it's, it's one of those things over here that's like I've never put it on a track and said, nah, it ain't working. It just I love it too, man. Worked. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I'm so, uh, that's how that, but I was, I was listening to lots of Roy and all that stuff. And
1: did you do that record in Nashville or did you do it at your place? I was in
0: all my stuff spent okay. here in yeah. my place. Um, they, yeah, they came down. Like, um, I, I just knew that I was looking for that kind of music in a modern setting. Yeah. And no one was doing it. No one was, no one other than maybe Rufus Wainwright was doing the whole rose in your teeth, dramatic look at me kind of vocal. You know, everything is always gaze and simplified. And if it's rangy, it's, you know, you're trying too hard or whatever. And I was like, no nah, man, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, Roy Orbison would. Yeah. You know, all of my heroes would, Patsy would, um, so I'm gonna go for it, and and I did, and I scratched that itch, and I'm really proud of that record. Yeah, but I don't know that I'll do another record with a, you know, preconceived notion of what it should be. Uh, but I'm very proud of that record.
1: Well, taking up enough of your time, I think. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you cook up next, and I'm you know you know I'm I'm sure a little time away from writing is probably going to stir up some, some crazy new stuff in your brain. So I'm looking forward to hearing I, I, what comes next, man.
0: I hope you are right. <laughs> um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your gear back here, but what, yeah. what console are you working on? Is that an API? Yeah, it's a 1608. Um, yeah. I, I, I wanted one. Is it an earlier story? Like my wife was teaching full time and I was on the road and three kids and she called me crying you know, from just the stress of it all. And I'm in LA in some, you know, uh, beautiful place with great weather. And she's here in this drafty ass old Victorian and finally told her, you have to quit your job. You have to, I have no idea how we're going to pay our bills. Yeah. We can't keep going like this. And it worked out. Things started, you know, started doing like this for the civil wars. And we were able to, Fully renovate our house the way we wanted to, and uh, so yeah, you gotta you gotta follow your gut. But uh, you got it. Uh, the thing I lo- wanted was the endless manipulation of those 500 units, and you know that the console could be a com- it could almost be a completely different console, you know, every year depending on the session. We should use these sorts of components. And that that's fine, man. That's, it is. That's, yeah. that's exciting.
1: Yeah, I swap them around quite a bit. And
0: there's, yeah.
1: a, there's like 16, you know, I've got the, all the EQs here, but then there's eight more that, you you know, I've got like a spring reverb set up and then a few different yeah. weird preamps that are good for things and some compressors and stuff. And you can just kind of do whatever. And it's pretty great for all that
0: the stuff. Only, I think the one thing that held me back, and this may not be it, but uh, I, uh, I think Ben's reservation was, how uh how the routing was and is it an inline console no yeah
1: and and that you know that can be problematic but for me it's like i don't know it just works so well there's yeah there's issues where i wish they'd done something differently or whatever but it's it is what it is and it's what i have and and i love the way it sounds and yeah it's Uh, cool because it's got the automation on it too which is another thing that was like i would never have afforded that but it was just like, it came with the thing. It was already in there. And you know. Was it
0: Massenberg Automation? No, it their own, it's
1: their own it's API their own- thing. It's like this funny little computer right on the thing. And uh, it actually works really I, well.
0: I wanted it for all the things that you're saying. Uh, I already had a Studer 962 yeah. broadcast desk. And it's great. Sounds great. Lots of headroom. Doesn't color the sound that much, so you have control. of. Uh, but, again routing and you know um things like that so uh we just got a new uh not a new but old neotech oh cool where'd you find that very happy nashville yeah pretty sure yeah nashville and it's in good condition and it already it sounds fantastic but it also has given ben a whole lot more uh flexibility on how he does his job and and it felt like we had gotten to a point where we needed to do that plus it looks like a real console right. Yeah, you know, yeah that helps too yeah. when, when people come in and like oh okay this is a real studio how big is the uh, console it's not that big probably six foot long is it like 24, 24 track or something yeah cool that's we swore need? we were we swore we were never going to have anything more than 16.
1: yeah but, that's the thing for me it's like i rarely go above 16 if i do there's we
0: to... rarely do yeah, yeah yeah we rarely do uh I remember when we first started talking, we were talking about consoles and everything, and I was shopping around trying to find something to fit in my budget. But he, I asked him, I said, so do we need more than 16 uh, channels? He said, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> You're my man. Yeah, that's how you so know. So we, it. Got a, we okay. just got a two-inch 16-track. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, we're still... We're still uh, like an MCI some, or something,
1: or a Studer, or
0: what'd you get? I'm drawing a blank now that you ask. ATR? Well, they make tape, but maybe. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. That's all right. The, I'm just drawing a complete blank. I'm look. I can see it. <laughs> through the window. You can literally see uh,
1: it.
0: <laughs> you can literally see it. It was. It came out of Vancouver. It was the one. It was used for uh, Heart, Crazy on You, Barracuda. Oh, that okay. Stuff. From probably from on Little Mountain. Mm-hmm.
1: Then I'm from Vancouver, so I know that studio really well. Awesome. Uh, that's what they told us. So okay.
0: it, it may be a, a, a thing where every recorder that comes out of Vancouver, they just <laughs> yeah. add that to it. And honestly, I don't care. I don't, yeah. I don't need to know. I'm no. just going to keep going with that story. That's right. But it's, it sounds great. It's got some bugs. We, we got it. They all do. So we, we record mostly digital. Um, we work with a lot of really quiet artists and tape, you know, it's i don't have to explain to you yeah yeah as much as i want to i want to work i want to make a big rock record mm-hmm. uh not, not necessarily for me i'd love to produce a, just a balls to the wall super out. loud yeah and and tape uh that that's that, that's, I where it found really, that band
1: that's where it really uh shines i think and it's still worth doing maybe yeah
0: yeah yeah if you hear a you for a rock band that wants to come make okay. a record down shows, you just let me know. <laughs> all right, <laughs>
1: I got to get down there, man. I it's I feel like an idiot for never having been to Muscle Shoals, like considering how much of a fan I am of all the music that's made there, like. And There's I live so So close.
0: many people up there that have never been down here. And yeah, I've been here for ten years changing. now, and
1: it's like I I, I got to come down and check that town out.
0: Well, please let me know if you do, and I'll give you the tour. All I'll right. take you over to Fame and Muscle Shoals Sound and. Oh man. that'd you can be go, amazing. You can come see my place and you can go see Helen Keller's birthplace if you want to do that. Really?
1: Wow. Okay. Cool, man. Well, uh, thanks so much, John Paul. I appreciate the my time, pleasure. Man, and It's great to talk to you and um, thanks, for, pleasure, man. thanks for scheduling it with me. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, the Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and the Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out.